Oh, good. That's good. Say your name again. Meg Kai. Wait, and by the way, blessings on the two of you. Thank you. Blessings on the two of you. It's just, you know, when that happens, the focus tends to go to the child. It should, because what she's done is extraordinary. But um, at least there's not a question in my mind that she would not be there without you guys. Um, we accept. <laughs> what did she say? Yeah, that's right. We what, what accept. accept. That's right. It's not all girls. <laughs> Here, let's start. Any, any others? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, I want to go back to the reading um, during our when I go over some things here, but I want to just recall the, the refrain from the psalm. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. We're in the middle of Lent. Um, um, you ask us to strengthen our efforts of self-denial, to learn to put ourselves away, um, to acknowledge the selfishness in us, the pride, um, all the other sins, um, the more so because, at least in this class, we're becoming conscious of it. We've just gone through purgatory. Um, we should see our sins more clearly, the pride, the envy, the wrath, sloth. Um, sloth is sometimes hard because we think if we're active, we're not slothful, but very often there's a sloth behind our busyness, just um, avarice, gluttony, lust, all of them um, strengthen all of us. Um, the more conscious we are of them, to take greater pains to put them away. Gladly, gladly knowing that we have your help, you went to a cross, asked us to join you. Strengthen us in this last part of Lent to do that, um, and to be glad, um, to bring a greater spirit of forgiveness um, to everything we do with laws. Um, they don't cancel each other out in your life. Um, you ask us to take seriously both of them. Um, um, be with us through the remainder of this Lent. Um, there's a sorrow here, the brokenhearted, particularly where there are burdens. Um, help us always to bear them, trusting in you. Um, we don't always get our way. Um, you're teaching us um, a greater humility um, to trust you and always try to become better, and to bring you to everything we do. Eska, um, a special blessing on um, everybody recovering, Sue and Bev, most particularly. <coughs> we're glad for Fred's recovery and for Suzanne's. Um, um, and we offer um, a great um, um, expression of gratitude, thanks for um, Kai, and all of her accomplishments, um, surround that young woman um, with your grace. Continue to strengthen her. She may fall again, hopefully not, but if she does, she will be strengthened by having gone through this long period. Um, we go on, we trip, we go on. Each time we pick ourselves up, we're a little bit stronger 
from the good things that we've done. Let it be so for her. And whatever happens going forward, um, bless Tom and Linda. Let their hearts be quiet, trusting in you to continue doing what they're doing. Um, and let the joy be greater in all, all of them coming to this point. We offer all these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. I hope I, I hope these prayers are okay for you guys. I hope these prayers are okay for you guys because I feel a little bit awkward sometimes speaking for you. I hope they're okay. You know, um, I'm always glad that we pray for each other. I'm trusting. I'm, I've asked that you pray for Suzanne and me. Um, and we keep all of you in our prayers constantly, even though sometimes you're obnoxious. <laughs> I should stop this. It's Lent. I always made a vow this Lent. Put that facetiousness away. I haven't quite succeeded. You're going to have to go, you're going to have to go back to confession. Lots. He hasn't either. <laughs> he may not have to give it up as much as I do. I mean, it just comes out of me too easily, too easily. Let's start. Let's start. <laughs> Let's start. I want to do a quick review. Um, <laughs> quick, quick review. Last time we met, I talked about the importance of the peripatia in the um, commedia. You all know what the peripatia is. You know, in um, according to Aristotle. The, the peripatia is a turn. Um, there's a plot for every tragedy, every comedy, every story. The, the peripatia is really important, not only because it signals a turn, and that's almost the superficial meaning of it. It's really important for this reason, because the peripatia, the turn, signals um, a recovery and a return to balance. Okay. If the tragic hero doesn't see something, and he goes through his life, I've talked about this, for all of us, we, we so often go through life thinking we see so much because we're smart. And then we reach a point where it's as if the rug gets pulled out, we're on our face, and we realize the way that we saw things wasn't true at all. I've said every work begins in medias race, in the midst, in the midst of things. We're in the middle of a life and suddenly we hear Aunt Sally runs off with somebody, um, our son is um, in with the wrong crowd. I mean, whatever it happens to be, suddenly we're forced to struggle with our blindness that we think we see because our eyes are open. We're not blind. We've got ears. And we realize we really don't see it all. Every great work, according to Aristotle, and I think you know from our work, every great work turns on the peripatia. Peripatia means turn. The church word is anagnorisis, a conversion, a turning. And we know that, according to our faith, conversion should be ongoing. If we ever get settled in our way, it's a clear sign there's something we're not seeing. We're back in our blindness, thinking we know everything. The, the only healthy attitude in living is wonder, asking, wondering. So um, we were talking about the peripatia and its importance for the comedia, and I suggested there are two major ones. One is the, in the shift from the inferno to the purgatorio. 
from the Inferno to the Purgatorio, we leave a world in which people have lost the good of the intellect. They don't even know that they don't know. They're in their minds, they're trapped. What they were doing in life, because they wanted that so much, that's what they're doing in hell. They're just continuing. And the, I, I told you how frightening that one scene for me where that guy is waving the flag, running like he's the winner, you know, like he's the one coming in first. It's scary because I know it. I mean, being competitive is not a small thing for me. I grew up, you know, any of us who are competitive want to do well. And you watch this guy going off like he's winning a race, which he had to do in life. He has no sense that he's going to be, he's fixed, caught in that thing because that's what he wanted. So in hell, people don't even know they don't know. Their mind is trapped in what they, what they want and that's what they have. So eternity for them, now hold on to this, this is really important. Eternity, eternity for them will be eternal, it'll go on, except it'll be that one thing. It's like a, a, a motion without thought is a machine. I mean, they're almost turned into machines. They're mechanical. They'll just repeat that forever. Set that off against the condition of paradise. Remember, when, when souls enter paradise, they're going to behold God. Every desire, every desire will be satisfied. And because he's infinite, every desire they have will set on for more. It will never stop. Wrap our minds around that. Yeah? So, the peripatia is not small. We, we had a peripatia in the shift from the inferno to the purgatorio. Dante's movement from hell into the purgatorio represents a shift. The psyche is not satisfied just with law, having what you want. It moves in, um, into an action in which the law is met. It's not put away. It's met but with mercy and a joy. People are taking on penance. So they're answering their pride, they're answering their envy, the proud member are carrying boulders. They're, at every level, everybody's having to strain to see better. The, the proud, just for one example, remember they're bent over, forced to look on the, um, the checks, the sins themselves, forced to. To see the goads on the mountain, they have to strain their heads to see. They have to work hard because they're so used to seeing things the way they want it. And I'm assuming that's an image for all of us in our pride, in our envy, you know, all the sins. But when Dante comes to the top of um, the Purgatorio, another shift, um, an action, a turning action, is introduced into the plot. And that turning action is major. It's, it's far, far greater. And I think sometimes we can miss it because from hell to purgatory is a break, a radical break. What happens when Dante goes up the purgatorio continues into the heavens, so there seems to be no break. He's just going, and we can miss it. And I don't want to miss it because I think it's stunning to, to watch what happens. Okay? So the peripatia, there's another peripatia that occurs there. And to see it, we have to see what's going on with Virgil and Beatrice. Okay? Quickly, go back. So the you go to uh, one fourteen. Mm -hmm. 
fifteen. Uh -oh. oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Three fifty. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the. Okay. Remember, Dante and Virgil have spent the night on the stairway from the lustful to Eden, the earthly paradise. Dante had a dream of Leah and Rachel who are images of the active and contemplative life. It signifies that they have become complete in him. Both of those are complete. He's ready to move on to return to Eden. They, they emerge from the last ledge onto the earthly paradise. And I wish we had more time because I, I myself would love to read four or five passages. The, there's a, an air, a breeze, wafting through the leaves. The leaves are beautiful. There's a scent to things. There's an aroma. It's almost as if you could smell the earth. There's no sense of disturbance. There never will be. They, they've returned to Eden. So they've returned to a, an Edenic condition. The peace, the wonder, the beauty. When they emerge, Virgil stops Dante and he crowns and miters him. Page 351. You now have seen, my son, the temporal and the eternal fire. You've reached the place where my discernment now has reached its end. I led you here with skill and intellect. From here on, let your pleasure be your guide. The narrow ways, the steep, are far below. Go down. Expect no longer words or signs from me. Now is your will upright, wholesome, and free, and not to heed its pleasures would be wrong. I crown and mitre you, Lord of yourself. Now that's crucial because of problems, it, subtleties that it points to, and, and I, I think most people miss them. Virgil is an image of natural virtue perfected, okay? Natural virtue perfect. He belongs with the virtuous pre, um, pagans, yeah? Um, he's not, he and those other virtuous pagans are not being punished the way Dante shows them, but they're not in heaven. Because perfected virtue will not get us to a supernatural condition. Yeah? Natural perfection is different from a supernatural. So Virgil, Aristotle, Plato, all those men were good men, decent, virtuous people. Think about how different the Protestant mind is because the Protestant mind says there can be no such thing. After the fall, every, everybody is corrupt. Everybody's corrupted. So a Manichaean, a Manichaean element enters our world with a Protestant mind. Milton's words, all corrupt. A Catholic doesn't believe that. A Catholic believes we're wounded. And the wound is so great it overwhelms us. It can seem like we're depraved. Virgil, Dante is saying no. St. Thomas is saying no. So here, Virgil, who's an image of a natural man perfected, Crowns and miters Dante, okay? Are we all together? Okay, but then this strange moment comes. 365. Beatrice appears. Remember, what, what's approaching Dante is the Mass. All the books of the Old Testament, all the books of the New Testament, all the writers of the letters, it's all there. In the middle is a chariot with a griffin, dual nature, lion and eagle, images of Christ in his human divine nature, and Beatrice, who is a Christ bearer, a Christ bearer. And she's the one who awakened this love in Dante, that helped Dante realize that there's something divine in the human person. 
Okay. She approaches, um, she died, remember, and as she approaches, Dante's knees begin to shake because he's seen this old love, 365. And instantly, though many years had passed since last I stood trembling before her eyes, captured my adoration, stunned by awe, my soul that could not see her perfectly still felt, succumbing to her mystery, the power and strength of its enduring love. The sooner were my eyes struck by the force of the high piercing virtue I had known before I quit my boyhood years, then I turned to the left with all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arm. This is a man that Virgil just pronounced perfectly man. I crown and mighty, crown, church, mitre, or crown, king, mitre, church, right? He is complete in himself. Um, all the confidence that makes a child run to its mother's arm. This is not a perfected man. Now it's a child running to its mother. When he's frightened or needs comforting, to say to Virgil, this is 366, to say to Virgil, not one drop of blood is left inside my veins that does not throb. I recognize signs of the ancient flame. But Virgil was not there. We found ourselves without Virgil. Sweet father, Virgil to whom for my salvation, I gave up my soul. Um, now we're going to look, you know that um, Beatrice is going to take him apart. She just scathes him. And she makes this cutting allusion to his beard as if he's not manly and he's, he's just shaken to his roots. He's humiliated, embarrassed. And we learn from here at 368 why, because when she died, she says, when I became more virtuous, more beautiful, when she left this life for the next, instead of being faithful to me, he turned from me and pursued other things, some of which I'm sure were women. So, and she says, 369, to such depths did he sink that finally there was no other way to save his soul except to have him see the damned in hell. The only way he was going to be saved is if he, Virgil took him to, so he really saw the consequences of his actions. If he didn't take those seriously, he was in trouble. So the Dante that we see trying to climb that hill at the beginning of the story was already damned, even if he didn't know it. Okay. So the question that I two major questions that I asked last time, and I just want to I want to quickly go over these because I want to get on. Why does Virgil go back? Isn't that cruel? This is Dante's father. It used to really bother me because I, I I myself love Virgil. He's his father. He's his mentor. Dante has nothing but dear things to say to him. How can that go back? How can that be made to go back to hell? He's so good. So good. What does it mean? It's, it seems to me it's really clear what it means. Virgil's an image of the naturally perfected man. Everything good. But before Dante can go on, that good has to be left behind. Now think about that. How extraordinary that is. To, to go on in the spiritual life means putting those things away because you can't go on until you do. And I gave the example last time. Remember Dante's line in the Vita Nova, the first opening line of the Vita Nova poem, which was his poem about his experience with Beatrice? His first line was, ladies who have the intelligence of love. And I suggested thinking about the difference between an intellect rooted in love and an intellect rooted in a fallen soul, a wounded soul. 
Because in one, the, a worldly love, the way we use reason tends to justify ourselves, condemn, justify, excuse. You know? Reason in the other, the intelligence of love, reason of the other is rooted in love. Its source is divine. That means everything that that kind of reason will do will be radically different from the way in which the other kind of reason works. And I wanted to underscore that because I just think it's so important. We can, we can go on grieving because Virgil has to go back to hell. Remember, he's a virtuous pagan. He's the image of everything that, that's natural that can be perfected. It's so hard to let go of that. It, it, if we don't see how great this is, that love, how much, that reason, how good it is, we will miss this moment. Because it, it, as great as it is, and it's extraordinarily great as Dante shows it, because Dante wouldn't have come to this point without Virgil. I mean, what can you say? It's an extraordinary thing. If, if you don't put that behind, you're not going on. Because what's ahead of, the, the Protestant would, what's ahead is not love without reason. There's nothing Beatrice does that doesn't express her mind explaining things. She's explaining the whole way. But it's a reason whose orientation is radically different. Because its root is love, it's divine. So what she does with her mind will be very different from what Virgil does. Okay? So it's really crucial to see the, the nature of the peripatia. You could miss it. You could grieve and say, how unjust Dante is as a Catholic. He's sending Virgil back to hell. Virgil is the very best that our human nature can be. If we don't see how great that is, we don't appreciate it. But if we don't see also that it's something that has to be let behind, put away, in order to go on, we're missing. That's how radical this turn is, the peripatia. Okay? That's the first. The second in Beatrice, <coughs> and I've, I've struggled with this, and I, all I can do is give you this, and it's the only thing I can make sense of, of it, but... A couple of things with Beatrice. Um, why not Christ? Dante's been perfected. And if he's already been perfected, as Virgil says, how can she scathe him? How can she take him down the way she does? I think, once again, it's that turn. Um, Virgil's great, but there's not a spark of something divine in him. He's the natural human. Beatrice is different. She's an image of God. She's a Christ-bearer. So even though from Virgil's perspective, from the perspective of natural reason, because there's lots he doesn't understand about Christianity or God, from Virgil's perspective, he's crowned in mitre. Dante is. From Beatrice, something's not quite right. And what has to have them suggesting, what hap why, why Dante does this when Virgil's already crowned in mitre, is that every one of us, <clears throat> every one of us, it's made in the image of God. We're natural creatures in Eden, not divine. We're natural creatures. But we carry something of God's image in us. After the fall, how well do we see that image? What happened to Dante that distinguished his life from other people is that when he looked at Beatrice, he saw an image of God in her. Now think about how important that is, like some divine radiance. An image of the he, he saw the image of the Trinity in her. So I think what's happening in her here is, even though Dante's purged everything to the natural man that would have led him back to Adam, now he's dealing with a deeper betrayal. He has to have a reckoning with what I called last week this original innocence. 
and I'm trusting most of them had it, even if they're subtle, they're epiphanies. Something will strike us that will light up. We will feel it. We may, we may not be greatly conscious of it. We may not be able to articulate it. One of the reasons Dante is so great, I think, is he can articulate it. He shows it to us. He was not faithful to the woman who awakened a sense in him that there's something divine in human beings. How many people see that? He's got to rec- He's got to square himself with that. So she's taking him apart because she represents something on the divine side of this re- natural reason and a kind of reason infused with faith. Okay, on the Virgil side is the natural reason. On the Beatrice Beatrice side, there's its reason infused with faith. Its its center is love. So he has to have a reckoning with that. <clears throat> That's why she says. You were unfaithful. And that's why, that's why he passes out. <laughs> you know, he's so humiliated. He, by the way, I mean, stop and think about it. Virgil said, I cry to mind you. She comes three seconds later, and he's a child running to his mother. In the presence of Beatrice, he's in the presence of something, I mean, we're not quite there, but something close to dreadful, awful, because it reveals God in a human. In the naturalistic world, I'm, I'm going to make a statement, some of you may just. In the naturalistic world, we're encouraged to just, today, particularly in the modern world, we're encouraged to see ourselves as animals, the whole naturalistic tradition. With Freud, the unconscious for Freud is an animal unconscious. It's, Freud has no notion of a spiritual con- unconscious. So everything about the modern world is reductive. It reduces us to the, everything that's only natural. What Dante is showing us is that there's something of God in each person and in some people more than others. It wasn't Beatrice. She imaged the Trinity. So he, he has to have this reckoning. And I'm trusting, if I'm taking Dante, that most of us, if not all of us, will have that same kind of moment. That we, that we have, before the purgation is complete, we, we will have to answer for some way, and maybe some of us, maybe most of us, was not responsive enough to that divine image of another human being that, that awakened that kind of desire that we're finding in Dante. That's the best that I can do for that. If anybody wants to offer anything more, please. All right. Do you have something? I just, I, 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 th- I think we're on the same page. I mean, I, I kind of saw Virgil, Virgil took him as far as he could with the tools that he had yeah. to offer. And it's sort of like, I guess, Aristotle's <coughs> telos. You know, mm-hmm. it's like an acre's ultimate goal is to become an oak tree. Right. So to me, he, he was kind of ready to make that turn. But he needed something that would make him move through that. Beyond Virgil? Beyond, beyond Virgil. Yeah. And that was... It's kind of like until we have faces, you kind of get to that point where, okay, you faced all your sins and everything, mm-hmm. but now you have to have the willingness to move on to the next phase. And I guess that's kind of what I saw mm-hmm. was happening with, with Beatrice. Mm-hmm. She was making him see the the error of his ways. Yep. Virgil got him to the point where he was ready to move on, mm-hmm. but he had to make that last yeah. effort. And, yeah, it's interesting. and I'm, I'm not... I'm, this is so subtle, and I don't want to take a lot of time because there are things, but um, that whole passage, and particularly, um, Fred, because of the way you put it, 
Um, being ready to do something and doing something on your own will, wait, doing something on, being ready and doing something on your own will and being ready and receiving a grace are two different things. Until we have faces and maybe even here, um, I mean, one of the ways of looking at this approaching pageant is that a grace is being offered right at that moment when you've been disposed and made ready, you know. Because um, it's not like Dante's going, I'm going to do this. He's receptive. He's been brought there. Virgil has sanctified, is not sanctioned is a better word. But he's waiting. He's ready. And then Beatrice comes. A Christ bearer is coming to him. And she's going to lay into him because even though he's human and he can be measured in Virgilian terms, he's a natural man, there's a part of him that's divine. And in his particular case, he was allowed to experience the divine in another person. And he didn't take that seriously enough. And here she is taking him apart for it. Okay. Now, the last thing, my, the last question I asked that time is, why not Christ here? You know, when she comes, he's, he's purified. He goes through the two rivers, the Lethe and Unoe. The one takes away memory of bad things. The one restores the memory of good things. He's ready to go on. Why not Christ? Why, why a Christ bearer? Why not Christ? And I suggested... Um, um, Free will. Hold on, hold on. Um, I want to, for a second, I want to step outside of this because it, it's, to me, the, one of the most important things, and it's, I hope it's blowing open the Paradiso for you guys. It certainly did for me. Remember the image that I gave you several weeks ago from St. Thomas that God the Father is not more or less than the Trinity. That notion to me is so. so overarching everything in my life right now to, to, to get that notion. If that's true, it's true because God is being itself. He is being, all being. And the Son and Spirit are one with him. So he can't be more or less than the whole of the Trinity. Neither can the Son, neither can the Son and the Spirit be greater than the Father, even though they're together. They're one God, three persons. That asks us to use our mind in a radically different way from the way we do in a material world, even where physics applies, because we're dealing with quantity, things that can be quantified or contained or limited. We, we, we're to understand that God is infinite and the Son and Spirit are one with Him. So think about the mystery of the Son coming down. They all dwell, indwell, right? They indwell with each other. They're one with each other. So even though, even, even though the, one is called the Father and the other the Son, they're differentiated by relationships, not by inferiority or superiority, but by origin, the Father, Son, the Spirit. Um, there's a wholeness and an indwelling between them. The interesting thing about this is the Son was doing nothing outside of what he had been doing in eternity, when he takes on a body because the sun comes and indwells in a body. Now hold on to that because that's where we're going in the Paradiso in the opening. So just hold on to that notion, even though right now it seems abstract. 
He came as God and indwelt in a body. He's indwelling in a body. He, that's why he's incarnate. One, not one or the other, but both. The whole purpose of purgatory was to help people recover that sense of wholeness, of oneness with another. It, it seems to me it goes far beyond Adam and Eve because now it involves Christ, the Son, divine, take indwelling, taking on our human nature. He indwells. So the whole purpose of purgatory was to help us recover that wholeness. What happens when two people maintain their identity, it's still Joe and Sam, but it's not just Joe and Sam, it's Joe and Sam who are capable of indwelling one within each other. That's the condition we saw in paradise. We're going to see it in the opening lines here. Is that clear? That the, the whole purpose of purgatory, was, we've seen it, ledge after ledge after ledge, was to recover that lost wholeness and something that Christ has given to us that wasn't there with Adam and Eve. Okay? Are we together? Am I going too fast here? Are we all right? Okay. Why not Christ? Why Beatrice? If Dante's gone through the two rivers, he no longer has a memory of bad deeds and has only memory of good deeds, why not Christ? Because what's going to happen now as he enters paradise is he's not going to be able to see Christ. Christ is his ultimate end. Reunion with God is where he's been going. Right? That's the whole purpose of everything. When he started climbing the mountain, he saw the sun and he wanted to go to that sun. That was his goal. He wanted to get there. And everything that's happened shows he can't get there on his own. He's going to have to go through a cross. In some sense, the <coughs> whole journey. His aim is to be reunited with the sun. Right? With Christ. Who saved him. How can he see Christ as he is? To know him as he is. That's biblical. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. How can he see him as he is if he doesn't see this person, Christ, was the word who created everything in creation? So that what Dante is going to be encountering in the heavens is the logos, image of Christ, everywhere. Everything is going to be intelligible. Everything has meaning. Beatrice is going to be able to explain things to him that Virgil could never have done. Never, with all of his goodness. So why not Christ? I think because he won't be able to see Christ as he is until he sees this extraordinary thing that he did. Remember, Christ is the Son indwelling in flesh. And as the Son, he was the Word who was the means of creation. So in everything that Dante's going to experience now, in, in, at every level, he's going to be seen into the mysteries of the Word, the one who gave form to everything. He, Christ is the form giver. All things in creation are distinguished by their form, a leaf, a tree, a car, a stone, you know, whatever it is. It's the form of a thing that makes it what it is. Who was the source of all those forms? The Word. That means everything in creation speaks. That's why I love that supernatural love. Remember the scissors and 
you know, the, the you, you remember we read that, I read it, the scissors, the cloth, every, everything speaks because everything means. So, in a sense, he, what we're, we will not see Christ from Dante's perspective as he is until we learn to see that all of this that he will experience is in Christ, was in him. He was the, he was the source of it. He made it all. So that when we get to Christ, our, our amazement should be tremendously amplified. This is the one behind all creation. He was the means of creation. He was the means of atoning for it. How could it not be? How could it be otherwise? Okay. Now, um, if I can, I'm going to take a, but just to, to, to 394. <clears throat> After Dante is washed in Unoe, immediately, as soon as he's washed in Unoe, he and Beatrice rise. And they're described as rising faster than the speed of light. How can it not be? be and <clears throat> here's Dante's description. 394. Gazing at her, I felt myself becoming what Glaucus had become, tasting the herb that made him like the other sea gods there. Transhumanized. It cannot be explained per verba, so let this example serve until God's grace grants the experience. He is transhumanized. Remember the word we've been using is theosis. The church fathers. Theosis, gradually, gradually being changed into a god. It's absolutely crucial to see man is not going back to paradise. He's not. Christ entered the world. When Christ took on a body, he brought a divine element into the human nature. When he ascended into heaven, returned to the Father, he took the body back. So his call is for everybody now to share in a divinity that Adam did not have. We've sinned, our sins make us worse, but our grace makes us better with Christ. So man is being offered something way beyond um, anything Adam had. Now let me stop. I want to start going through the cantos of the Paradiso. To me that's a lot and I, I just, I don't, I just, it's so important to see the peripatia, the turn that's play, taking place here. You could miss it, but just going through, it's a linear adventure, right? The, the, the avarice, the gluttonous, the lustful, earthly paradise, into the heavens, planet by planet by planet. But at this point, amazing things are happening. Virgil's returning, Beatrice is coming, the intelligence of love. The way the intellect is working now couldn't be more different from the way the intellect worked before. We're entering Christian mysteries. If I can put this sort of briefly, what may it be about Dante is this. D Dante is Catholic in this sense. Dante carries everything of the humanist tradition. Everything of the humanist tradition, not, not religious, everything of the humanist tradition. Virgil, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, you name it, Boethius. Yeah, they're all there. They're all there. He carries them. And they're being transformed. He carries everything of the humanist tradition. And he carries everything of the mystics. Everything of the mystics. We're, we're entering a mystical world. 
Dante, remember when he began, he said, I saw this, or, or he said, I, Paul saw this, I can't do this. What Dante's showing us is that it has to be a serious question for a reader. Did Dante have a mystical vision? How else could he have shown this? He carries everything of the humanist tradition and everything of the mystic tradition in a way that no other writer has ever done. And he's showing, in some sense, this is our Catholic faith. We're supposed to carry it all. Or, or we're invited to carry it all. It would be a better way of putting it. Everything in everything, Christ didn't come just to perfect some part of us. He came to perfect it all. Not just what we pick and choose, all of it. That's our Catholic faith. We don't just, I mean, it's one of the differences between um, Dante and Milton. Remember, Milton hated the pagans. Remember, when, when we see Satan falling, every one of those demons represents one of those ancient gods. Um, he, he looked at the heroes of that pagan tradition as evil, inherently evil. Satan replaces it, and Satan's an illusion. And the virtues that Adam and Eve bring into the world are patience and, and forbearing, I think. He thought all of those pagan virtues, the heroism, was an illusion, a, a waste, not for Dante. That's why Milton didn't think very much of Dante. I think he hated him. So what's happening at this moment is not small, it's, it's huge, and it goes right to the center of our faith. Before we go on, let me stop for a second. Any, any, any? So we're, we're entering a world now that's beyond Virgil's reason. I can't say this strong. If, if everybody's found it easy to read up to this time, guess again. Um, we're entering a world, I mean, in, in one sense, it's, a, it's the world of the mystic, except Beatrice is going to be con consistently using reason to try to make that world intelligent. She's going to try to make the intelligibility of it clear to us. So everybody understand that. That's a mystical world. It's full of intelligence. There's nothing that's not intelligible of God. Mystery means there's more to be seen, more to be understood. That's what mystery means. Mystery doesn't mean confusion on the other side of it, or chaos. Mystery means... There's more there to be known. So this, this mystical sense of the world is full of intelligibility and light. Reason doesn't stop. Beatrice is going to be doing all she can to make that intelligibility clear to us through Dante. So we're entering, <laughs> we're entering a, I think it's just a much harder, there's nothing like this in literature. You know, most literature is, she killed him, he killed her, they, uh, she went to bed with him, and a war started around him, and the Greeks and Trojans were killing each other for, you know, that's what stories are, we're going into a mystic dimension um, as part of an adventure, and those involved in it are doing what they can to make it clear to us. So it's, it's not going to be easy to read, I don't think. I don't think. Any, hold on to that notion. God the Father is not greater or less than. We're being asked to enter a dimension of wholeness that ordinarily is beyond us. And try to understand. Because the danger for us, I think, today is reductive. We make God less than he is. We make Christ a buddy. You know, the awe, the wonder, the, the amplitude, 
that he's behind this whole creation. We just, Jesus Christ is my savior. There he is. We forget that he's the word. He's every, the logos, the logos is everywhere in creation. Do we see it? The whole point of this course was to see if we can't find Christ where ordinarily we don't see him. So let me stop. Any, any questions? Or? Well, that's what you just said. Isn't that panentheism? We see Christ. We see God in all things. I don't think it is, Linda. It's only not in this. Pantheism, but it's panentheism. Well, everywhere. well, hold on, hold on. Wait, yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> Our Catholic belief is that God is both imminent everywhere in creation and transcendent. If God made everything, his imprint is everywhere. If you made the imprint or nature everything, which is what the pantheist does, then you could say that. But that isn't what we do. We know our God is present everywhere. He's, he's with us everywhere. But he's also transcendent. Um, if this is his creation, he's present in everything. It couldn't, other, couldn't be otherwise. The trouble with the pantheist is that he, he um, denies the, the transcendent. It's, he makes nature a god and everything in nature is a god. And so um, it's not quite the same thing. No, pantheism is not the same as panentheism. And I'm distinguishing between the What's two. the difference? Sorry, God that. is not all things. That's pantheism. He is in all things. Panentheism. That's what I'm talking What's about. Pan, define panentheism. Sorry. Panentheism. God is present in all things. Mm-hmm. Pantheism, they're saying God is all things. There's a difference. His presence, his presence is. How are you? What? How? How are you understanding the logos? What's the? What's? Is there? Are you having a difficulty with that, or raising a question? I'm not clear. The logos is present in all things. God is present in all things, but He's not limited to them. He's outside of them, even though. He, you find traces of him everywhere in creation. Okay. Does that help? Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. This note, God, by the way, in a Christian tradition, Christ is the logos. He is the word. Mm-hmm. And he's the source. He's imminent, he, he, particularly because he took on our nature. You know, but um, God was always present before. But for God to enter creation become a part of think about the paradoxes of the, by the way because it's so easy to go to in a black white perspective to make something one or the other father used to and harp on this not one or the other that's a protestant word he said both and you know is more true christ is the logos he's present in everything in creation um he but before he came it would be it would have been easier to stay in a dichotomy of contradiction. He made that harder because he created all sorts of paradoxes. The God who created became part of his creation. The one who was impotent became weak. The one who was rich in everything became poor. The one who was outside of time became bounded by time. So with the advent of Christ at the heart of our Christian faith are all these paradoxes. We're supposed to be thinking in terms of paradoxes, not just oppositions or contradictions. The one who was omnipotent made himself vulnerable, went to a cross and died. The one who was 
undiable, immortal, died. I mean, you can't look at any aspect of it from the perspective of Christ and not find a paradox in it. And the easiest thing for us to do is to separate them, make them contraries, you know. When we're asked to pull them together, that to be careful. Um, any, any, anybody else? Let's, is everybody okay? I always feel like I need to take a break because that to me is, it's, to me it's so amazing. I, I, sorry, I get too worked up. <laughs> I, I, there's not another work of literature like this in our literature, and you know how much I love all of it, that this is extraordinary what Dante's doing here, just extraordinary. It's no longer Jesus is my Savior. It's the Word came down, He's every, everywhere around us. Do we see Him? One of the reasons I love Supernatural Love, you know that poem? Mm-hmm. She's a four-year-old child, her father's a scholar, he has no clue, no clue. The thread speaking, the scissors speaking, the word off the page is speaking. Everything is speaking. It all has meaning. She sees it. He doesn't. Do we see Christ? Are we aware of him? This is his creation. We're a part of it. He came into it. When we take the Eucharist, I mean, one, here, again, sorry. What happened with the... <laughs> What happened with the Reformation? Be still. <laughs> well, sorry, sorry. What happened with, no, I'm, go, I'm going. I'm sorry, Doc, I'm trying. What happened with the Reformation, remember, is they, they tried to do away with the mysteries of everything. They wouldn't, they wouldn't deal with paradoxes. Christ is not present in that Eucharist. When we, I mean, we've talked about this when, since we began the whole Protestant Catholic. When somebody take, if you put a gold this is Father's line of art. You put a piece of gold bullion up in front of the altar and said the Eucharist, choose. <laughs> line a congregation up and walk them by and say, choose. What would they choose? A lot, some of them, I guess, maybe. I mean, it would be sad. But if you had a million dollars or a choice in that in the Eucharist, which would you choose? I'm, 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 gonna, I'm sure there's going to be somebody clever in the class who will say, if you were Portia, you choose the gold bullion and immediately take the Eucharist. <laughs> um, when we take the Eucharist, we understand that that's Christ, the real present. Everything the reformers did was take that away. They reduced us to something less. They brought what I call, they brought it under the, the sign. Show me a sign. The, it's what the disciples want when they want mysteries reduced to reason. When, when we take the Eucharist, we're invited to step into a mystery, to give our wills. Mary didn't wait until she understood everything before she did it. She said yes. How easy is that for any of us? And I think, I think, more particularly for men, because I think men tend to live more in their heads you know, explaining things, wanting answers, then, I mean, that's not always true. Some women are like that, but we're, we're supposed to say yes. We enter into a mystery that we don't fully get a hold of. So Dante's taking us into that mystical world. Any, any thoughts or... There's this extraordinary gift given to us in our church. Extraordinary. Okay, turn to 
Um, now, just very, very quickly, um, we when we started the the Commedia, I said at the outset, the Trinitarian principle is not artificial, it's not superficial, it's not on the surface. You can look at it as a structural principle because you find it everywhere. Um, each, there's three canticles, each one's divided into three. You've got the Terza Rima, remember it's everywhere. It's here, but remember I said, the danger, particularly for modern scholars, they can look at it and say it's an informing structural principle. It is, but it also is a spirit informing everything that he does. It's a Trinitarian spirit. He carries that into the way. That's why he helps us to see the Trinity everywhere, because he sees it everywhere. It's here that the heavens are divided into threes. I, um, and I gave you this so you could have it without going to your, um, I gave this handout last week, so you don't have to go to the, the uh, study guide. So you have it handy, okay? It's the, it's, it's the one that says Paradiso Brief Notes. Do you have any duck? <laughs> Here, just take a look. We'll, we'll get some to you. Here's the, here's the division. And it's really interesting. Everything below the sun belongs to one third. From the sun up through the rest of the planets is a second third. And then everything beyond Saturn to the other is the third. So there's a Trinitarian structure dividing the, the planets, the universe itself. And it's interesting that the sun is a dividing point, the source of light. What we find in the first few planets are, this is crucial, everybody needs to hear this. Just put a stack on each table, Dokken. Um, where was I? The first planets. Are we're we're shown examples of um, virtues with deficiencies. So, when the souls left, when they died, gone to purgatory, not when they when they completed their work, um, they they carry with them deficiencies that were never completely answered in heaven. Okay, now it's really. A, Call it a paradox again, it's really important to see that. Nobody in heaven is not perfect. Everybody in heaven is perfect, but according to some degree, something of their nature. Dante's going to make that really clear in the opening. Every, everything is distinguished by its form. So if St. Thomas left a life, left, lived a life of holiness, like any of the saints, St. Francis, St. Joan, St. Catherine, you name them. If any of them led, led a life of holiness, that holiness carries over. More grace is given, more light, than somebody who didn't live a life quite as holy. Does that mean they're less perfect? No, they're perfect in their happiness. But there's a difference in the form, the, 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 the character that they bring there. So what we, what we experience in these opening cantos our souls, they're all in heaven. They're all with God. Dante's, this is the important thing. To, Dante's entered heaven. Remember, his body's transhumanized. He's entered a heavenly realm. 
The souls who are approaching him are degree by degree preparing him to see Christ. So each one shows a different degree of perfection. They're all equally perfect. And that will become clear immediately on page 398. This is so crucial to see. We seem to be enveloped in a cloud as, as listen, listen to the language, as, as brilliant, hard, and polished as a diamond, struck by a ray of sunlight, that eternal celestial pearl took us into itself, receiving us as water takes in light, its indivisibility intact. In the, in the physical world, can one body occupy the same space as another body? No. No. What's happening here? Dante's entering the moon as brilliant, hard, and polished as a diamond struck by a ray of sunlight. That eternal celestial pool took us into itself, receiving us as water takes a light, its indivisibility intact. Why? Because we're entering a heavenly condition. Dante's entering the sphere of the moon. It's a body with, without disturbing its indivisibility. It's still intact. It's one. Oh, here, make it better. After the resurrection, how is, described, how is Christ described coming into the room with the disciples? Hmm? How did he, how did he, how did he get in? Did he open the door and close it? He walked, wait, was Christ without a body? No. Explain that, somebody. He says to Thomas, put your holes here. Did Christ have a body or not? He did. Did he open the door and close it behind him? How did he do that? Does anybody give that a thought? Here it is. We're in another realm. It's just crucial to get beyond the way we think about these things. Dante's entering, we have to see a radical change has taken place. The tendency is we're so literal-minded that we read literally. He's entering the sphere of the moon. It's indivisibility intact. He's entered it. So he's got to... Remember in the Transfiguration, we, Christ said, we will, we will have a different body. We get an image of the, something will radically change. We will still keep the individual features that each of us is given in our body. It was Fred's question a while back, remember. Every one of the souls has the imprint in the soul. You can still distinguish one from another. But at the resurrection, everybody will have a body restored to them. But it will be a transfigured body. And here's what's interesting about this. is just amazing. When Dante encounters a soul in heaven, every one of them is going to be seen in terms of light. <coughs> Why? If you're in the presence of light, God, and you've taken on a divine nature, how can you not partake of that in your own, you know, the way we are being? Um, so what's happening, even, even if it's confusing or we, we don't believe it, that's what Dante, we've entered a mystical realm. He's, he's entered the sphere of the moon, body with body occupying the same without a problem because we're entering another realm okay um, if I was a body on earth we cannot think in terms of solid form within a solid as we must here since body enters body 
And so much more should longing burn us to see that being in whom we can behold the union of God's nature with our own, Christ. Because Christ, the Son of God, indwelt in a body. Why does the modern world want to deny Christ? Because it's too bound by physics or our materiality, a literal reading of the world. We're asked to go beyond. Is everybody following? Is everybody following? But I want to, we're running, I want to just get to one thing because I'm, I want to close this up, but I, I want to come back to this. Um, go on over. I want to just quickly look at Picard on page 405. On the level of the moon, Dante's meeting souls who were deficient in fortitude. Remember, so this, the, the deficiencies are, are with respect to the four natural virtues. Fortitude, justice, temperance, wisdom. Right? Those are the virtues we're all called to practice. What, what was happening when we went to purgatory? At every level, we were trying to take on a sin and answer it by a virtue. What's the virtue opposite pride? Humility. What's the virtue opposite um, envy? Generosity. Good. The virtue opposite um, wrath was meekness. You know, you can go up. Mary was the exemplar of every one of those. We're, we're asked to look at our sins and practice the virtue opposite them so we can become virtuous. If we do, we should become more perfected in the natural virtues. We should become more temperate, um, more prudent, um, let's see, more temperate, more prudent, more courageous, and more for and more just. And justice was always looked at the highest in the ancient world because it meant taking the things that were good in us and giving another its that person's due. Remember, I've been saying, how can you give another that person's due if you things are disordered in yourself? So what he's meeting here are souls who had deficiencies in the virtues. With Bacarda, it was fortitude. She and Constant did not remain faithful to their vows. On page 405. She says, I'm Bacarda, you see me here among these other blessed. Our station, which appears so lowly here, has been assigned because we failed our vow to some degree and gave less than we pledged. She and Constant committed themselves to orders. Men came and took them away. But instead of resisting, even at the cost of death, they resigned themselves. So it wasn't a perfected will. Dante gives the example of St. Lawrence on the gridiron, I think. Then Dante says, don't you, bottom of 405, don't you yearn for a higher post in heaven? She gently smiled as she did other shades, then came her words so full of happiness, she seemed to glow with the first fire of love. 406, if we desired to be higher up, then our desires would not be in accord with his will who assigns us to this sphere. Think carefully what love is, and you'll see such discord has no place within these realms, since to be here is to exist in love. Nobody can be there who isn't perfect in love. The order of our rank from high to high throughout this realm is pleasing to the realm as to that king who wills us to his will. His will is our peace. Does, any, does this, is this an echo of anything? Can you hear, have we gone over this? Did I... Last week, I can't remember, did we go over this? Do you remember what this is an echo of? Who was the first person in actual sin that we met in the Divine Comedy? 
Remember? Not the virtuous pagans, but the first person in sin. It was at the level of the lustful. Two lovers. Do you remember her name? Oh, no. Francisca? Yeah. Do you remember what her words were to Dante? If the king of the universe were only our friend, she, you remember? She wanted Dante to feel sorry for her, and she blamed God. Look at um, Picarda's words. Throughout the realm is pleasing to the realm as to the king who wills us to his will. His will is our peace. I hope you hear the parallel. If the king of the universe were... Dante knows exactly what he's doing. The first person we met in, at the level of sin, actually, was a woman, Francisca. The first person we're meeting here at the outset of the Paradiso is a woman. And her, her words stand as... Dante knows what he's doing. It's like watching a piece of music and watching the counterpoint to it. He, he knows exactly what he's doing. This is the opposite of, of Francisca, and it's meant to be. <coughs> um, the other ratings on page 47 is constant, and I don't want to go into this discussion, but what Picarda makes clear is a distinction between what she and Dante and Beatrice, Beatrice is the one who makes it clear, the distinction between what she calls the condition will, the conditional will, and absolute. An absolute will mean, condition will means you give in some way. The absolute will means you hold absolutely to your will, even if, even if you have to do things in the world because you're threatened with your life. So even if you're forced to do something, you do it, but you never waver in your will um, in, in what you do. So what's at issue here is vows being made by women, both of whom broke their vows, but in, with slight differences between them, okay? And it's, it gives Dante a time to say, he asks these questions as Beatrice, I, we, I wish we had more time, but we don't. He says, the problem is that when you break your will, when you, make a pro when you give a vow, when you make a vow in your life, you're held to it. The only way you can be freed from it is if you offer something greater in exchange. So if you made a vow for 25 cents and you broke it, you give 50, you know. If you make a, a vow to God, see, um, you, you, you can't give him more than your own will. So the difficulty then you're facing is much graver. You're going to have to give something more to answer that. Now, I, I, I'm sorry to do this, but I want to I want, I want us to look at this before we leave. In the next couple of cantos, Dante and Beatrice are going to rise to the level of Mercury here, and they're going to deal with deficiencies in justice. They're going to meet Justinian, who is the great Roman, um, who converted late, um, and who wrote the Code of Law, the, just, the Justinian Code of Law. And he describes the, the God's justice working in the world. I, I want to go back to it next week, but I, I don't want to take time, because I want to get to this. Turn to quickly on page 6, 421, Canto 6. Caesar I was, Justinian, I remain, who by the will of the first love I feel purged of all the laws of excessive shame. That's, that's Justinian. I want to come back to that. We meet Justinian, and then in Canto 7, we have what I think is, is not, not only one of the most important cantos in the whole of the Commedia, but it's one of the most amazing things that I've ever done, ever seen in my life because in this one canto, Dante gives the summary of 
all the books that have ever been written in theology, however many hundreds of thousands. When Justinian is talking, going back to page 425, he's talking about the Roman eagle, Caesar and his armies, coming to Jerusalem and destroying Jerusalem. Okay? 425. Now marvel at what I shall add to this later. It sped with Titus to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. What he's asking, be clear in this, what he's asking is, um, the Jews put Christ to the cross and killed him. Um, and as a result, um, Rome, not with any conscious desire to take vengeance, but they destroyed Jerusalem. And his comment is, um, I shall add to this later, it's bed with type, to avenge the vengeance taken for the ancient sin. Now Dante will ask on page 428, Beatrice sees that he's perplexed, and she she reads, this is, she, we see this all the time. She already knows what's in his mind before he speaks it. Remember, because this indwelling is going on. The, the, the presence of a body doesn't prevent them from being one. They're one. My intuition, which is never wrong, informs me that you do not understand how just vengeance can justly be avenged. If the vengeance on Christ was just, was according to a law, how can the Jews be punished um, for that for that act. They should have been left alone if it was a just act. And think about it. This is crucial. This goes to everything. The, the crucial thing about Christianity is that act, the act of the crucifixion, has to have been just. It had to obey a law. It had to be just or his atonement would be fruitless. He's answering a law. He's answering injustice. He's taking care of a judge. If it wasn't just, then his atonement is a fallacy, a waste of time. But here's Beatrice's answer. And once again, remember the difference here between what Virgil could bring to something like this and what Beatrice. She says on page 429, Now listen to my first reasoning. Once joined with the first cause, this nature was, as it has been first created, pure and good. God made man good, right? But by itself alone, by its own act, having abandoned truth in the true life, out of God's holy garden it was chaste. Then if the crucifixion can be judged as punishment of that nature assumed, no penalty could bite with graver justice. According to the nature assumed, the act of the crucifixion was just. No penalty could be bite with greater justice, just as none could be judged as more unjust considering the person who endure, endured it, with whom that other nature was combined. If you look at the person who was involved in the crucifixion, no act was ever more unjust. Thus, one event produced different effects. God and the Jews were both pleased, right? Mm -hmm. By this one death for which earth shook and heaven... Um, Now it should be not difficult for you to understand the concept of, of a just vengeance being avenged in time by a just decree. If you look, both God and the Jews were pleased, but for different reasons. Right? Is everybody clear? 
So if you look at the nature assumed because Christ took on our nature, because our nature was wounded, we committed a sin against God. If you look at the nature he assumed, he had to do it to, to give satisfaction for our sin. No act was more just. If it wasn't, it would make the crucifixion meaningless. He died for all men to answer, to answer a crime. If you look at the person who assumed the nature, no act was more unjust. He freely gave his life. Now, you may have questions, but I, I, I want to just throw out this theology because I'd like to ask you all to go back and reread this whole canto because it's this whole series of cantos. Now remember, and I'm going to come back to this next time, in the opening, we didn't look at this closely, but I will next time. Dante makes clear in the opening chapter, cantos when he looks at the moon spots and he gives the physics, the theory of physics to explain them in terms of rarity or matter. And he, Beatrice gives the argument and says, no, 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 you're, make, you're, you're being foolish. You don't understand something. She gives the example of the experiment with the mirror. I don't want to go into it. I'll do it next week. But she makes it clear that it's not the density or the rarity of the matter. That's a strictly materialist way of reading it. She makes it clear that what's at issue are the formal properties of the moon itself. And she makes it clear that it's the formal properties of everything in nature that distinguishes one thing from another. Some people are brighter, some people are greater athletes, one person is a greater celloist than another. You know, I mean, we just all have different gifts. It's the formal properties and the way we receive our bodies that account for differences. If you don't look at the formal properties, you can't distinguish them. So everywhere in creation, things are distinguished by these formal properties. Who's the source of them? Christ. He's the form giver, the word, the, the womb, the word, the logos. Now, we've just seen, Justinian has given us a description of the movement of, the, of, the, of God's justice through the world. The whole history is laid out. And one of the questions he's left with is, how could Jerusalem be a just punishment if the crucifixion was just? And Beatrice gives him the answer. On page 431, Dante's still not completely satisfied, so she says this. She's trying to make a distinction now to help him. It starts on 430 in the middle. Divine goodness, which from itself rejects all envy, sparkles so that it reveals the eternal beauties burning in itself. That which derives directly from his being from then on is eternal, for his seal, once it's stamped, can never be effaced. If, if God makes man in his image, he gives him a, an eternal soul, nobody can take away the eternity of it. The soul is eternal. That's why taking one's life is not going to answer because the soul, the soul's immortal. The angels are immortal. The devils were immortal. Right? But as his light and his work moves into creation, things receive that light differently according to their forms. And he, so he says, that which derives directly from his being is wholly free, not subject to the law of secondary things, created thus. It most resembles him, most pleases him. The sacred flame which lights all of creation burns brightest in what is most like himself. These are the gifts which humanity was privileged. He goes on, sin is the only power that takes away man's freedom and his likeness to true God and makes him shine less brightly in its light. Nor can he win back his lost dignity unless the void left by that sin be filled by just amends paid for the illicit joy. Man was made in his image, man lost God by an act of his own because the free will given to him was the greatest thing God gave him. Now here's 
the theology at the center of our church. To me, it's just an amazing passage. Your nature, when it sinned, once for all, in its first root, was exiled from these honors as it was dispossessed of paradise. Nor could mankind recover what was lost, as you will see if you think carefully, except by crossing one of these two fords. Man fell. He was disobedient. He disobeyed God. That's our original sin. Every other sin we have has its root there. Murder, adultery, whatever it is, the root of it is there. I hope that's clear. Th th let me put it, there is, I, I certainly feel this when I'm aware of my sins. I mean, you guys may know. There is at the root of our soul this wanting to be above a law, to not be bound by a law, to be lawless, to do something because I want to do it. The source of that is our disobedience of God. We broke a law. We broke his commandment. Okay. So there's only two things God could have done. Either that God simply through clemency should give remission, or that man himself to pay his debt or folly should atone. Now fix your eyes on the um, infinity of the eternal counsel. Listen well, as well as you are able to my words. Given his limits, man could never make amends. Never in his humility could man obedient too late descend as far as once in disobedience he tried to climb. And this is why mankind alone could not make his amends to God. Is that clear? Our sin was against an infinite God. There's no way as a finite creature that we could have made amends on our own. Right? If, if we sin, we're supposed to give satisfaction. We're supposed to make an act of justice or an act of reparation to atone for it. If our sin was against God, there's no way we could have done that. Thus it remained for God in his own ways, his ways I mean, in one of them or both, to bring man back to his integrity. But since the deed gratifies more the doer, the more it manifests the innate goodness of the good heart from which it springs. So then, the everlasting goodness which has set its imprint on the world was pleased to use all of its means to raise you up once more between the final day and the first day no act so lofty, no magnificent, was there or, or shall there be by either way. For God who gave himself gave even more so that mankind might raise himself again, that if he simply had annulled the debt and any other means would have been less than justice if God's only son had not humbled himself to take on mortal flesh. So here's the problem. We committed a sin we could not atone for. God could have left us damned or he could have simply forgiven why didn't he do either of those? I want to just take a second. Anybody have a thought? Why didn't he do? Because he didn't do either. He chose a mean. This is Aristotle's. I think this is the source of Aristotle's mean, by the way. Why didn't he do either? Why didn't he just leave us damned? Love. Hmm? Love. What Milton said went right to the point. I think Dante does too. What's the difference between the way the angels fell and the way Adam and Eve fell? We were tricked. Yeah, say it. We were tricked. We were tricked. That's why the fallen angels are damned. Remember, El Milton said this. I mean, he was so orthodox in saying that. The, the fallen angels couldn't be redeemed because they chose to sin. They wanted. They didn't want God. So they, in that first instance of their creation, it has to be, they turned. And those who fell are damned. How is there any remediation when you're not sorry for what you do? To pardon them would be to, to give your consent to sin. 
Um, so we were tricked. There's extenuations. And God made us. How could he leave us there when we were his creatures, were made in his image, and we were tricked? The other option is he could have just forgiven us. Why doesn't he do that? Wouldn't have taken. Hmm? Wouldn't have taken. He fleshed it out. I mean, you know, if, if basically without any effort on our part, we were forgiven. We would have ultimately have sinned again. Again, again. I hope that's clear. Yeah, you know it. From, I mean, all of us know it. Is everybody following? I just, this is amazing. This is the source, the root of Aristotle's mean. Either one of those extremes would have been the extreme, would have been the expressions of an, of an unloving, unjust God. And our God is neither of those. We know that our God is a loving God and a just God. He cannot play, he will not, he will not play around with laws. That's why that earlier episode, Christ had the crucifixion had to be a just act. It had to be an act in which he was giving satisfaction for a wrong, for his atonement to be legitimate. And he himself said, I, I, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. He was giving satisfaction for our wrongs. If we look at the nature assumed, no, no act was more just. If we look at the person who assumed that nature, no act was more unjust. And now we're given the reason. God could have left us damned. He could have forgiven us. He chose a middle course. His son took on our nature. And God who gave himself gave even more so that mankind might raise itself again than if he simply had annulled the debt. And any other means would have been less than justice if God's only son nor humbled himself to take on mortal flesh. Christ God invived in did it in a way that asked us to participate in our own redemption. He asked us to go to a cross. Now hold on, I want to I want to because we talked about this a lot. You know that all the way through purgatory, sinners who broke the law, they're no different from the people in hell. They're all sinners. What makes them different and out of hell is that they're all willing, they want to make amends for laws they broke, sins they committed, but gladly doing penance. So a law is being answered. The action of purgatory is bringing justice and mercy, love and the law together, not one at the expense of the other. The Protestant mind tends to be antinomian. Faith is everything. It tends to undermine the law. It doesn't take it seriously. Dante everywhere is making the importance of the law clear. Now, and remember this, look at those, and any other means would have been less than justice. Everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament points to justice as the preeminent virtue, the Mosaic law, the following the law. Justice is crucial. Christ did not come to do away with that because if he did that, he would be going against his father. The Old Testament and New Testament shouldn't be set against each other. Love doesn't cancel out justice, it fulfills it. So at the center of our tradition is this belief that justice has to be done in mercy, in a spirit of forgiveness, a greater, a greater love. Um, what Christ did was answer that in his own life. I give you a greater commandment, love others. But he said, I came to fulfill the law. He, 
he's doing the Father's will, it doesn't contradict it, it, it completes it, it takes it to a, a higher level of being, if you want to call it. It's so here in Canto 7, Dante's giving us the theology of the whole Divine Comedy, and really the center of a church. And if you read it, you, you, you begin to, if you go through these opening canties, you begin to see what it is hell does not understand. It refused God's justice, it refused his mercy, refused his love, it refused, it refused to obey a law. And it's now subject to it eternally. That's all it's got. So we're entering a world in which um, things that Virgil could never have understood are beginning to be made clear to us. Okay. Sorry. Any... We're good. Any... Any questions? There's a lot going on in the Paradiso. It is a really, really rich book. I think if I could encourage you anyway, it would be this. Don't forget that we're in, we're in a transhumanized condition as we go through. With, we're, we're, we're being asked to experience with Dante, just as we we're in, in the Inferno and the per, per, or Purgatory. But here his condition has changed. He's transhumanized. He's, he's showing us something mystical that the mystic would experience in recovering union with God. That, we have to keep, we can't just be literal-minded materialists. You know, we, we've, we've got to hold on to the materiality of the world because these are all real, they're real planets. He's not escaped the material world. But we're, we're experiencing it in a very, very, a very different way. It's a little bit like taking the Eucharist into us and know, this is why it's so, that is not just a wafer. If, if, if our faith is real, we know in that act Christ is with us, in us. And we can't let the literal fact that I, you know, see Francis here, and Suzanne in a body, or me, we can't let the literalness of our physical life take away. Christ didn't come to take the physical body away. He glorified it. But he, but he came to help us see that more is going on in the body than the naturalist would allow. There's this great work of transfiguration going on, day by day by day. Wow. <laughs> Any questions or, Fran, what are you saying? What's no, it? I said wow. What's going on? Why do you say no, that? No, it? just, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> I keep cringy when I think about Scott's comment early on when we all started. He said, I came for a glass of water and I got a fire hydrant. <laughs> that, you don't know how much that bothers me. I, 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 no. um, I don't know how to make it simpler. Wish I could. No. So in essence, you know, Dante had to been a, a very familiar with Aristotle's work. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so, I mean, in a, in a sense, as we go through from the Inferno to the Paradiso, that we're we're kind of walking through man's telos, telos, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the sense that we're we're seeing mankind through the pilgrim ultimately achieve his final goal, which is yeah. to be one with God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad for your questions, questions like this, Fred. If, if I were going to qualify it at all, and you know my habit of doing that, 
the, the telos is absolutely perfect, but and for, for Aristotle, there would have been a metaphysical dimension because of his metaphysics. He, he, he made us aware of things beyond the physical world in the metaphysics, the principles there. The, you have to go into it. This is, but so, so what the telos for him ultimately was should be a question. I don't have a question that it, even if it allowed for something immortal, that there that man, Aristotle said that you can't confine man to the merely human. Right. Because to do that is to um, bring on suffering. He knew that there was, he and Plato both knew there was something more. But they would have had no clue of what Christ makes right. clear. So what telos would mean for a man like Aristotle, with, all his, with a metaphysical view behind him, and what it would mean for a Christian who, who started with Aristotle but ended with Christ, that telos would be subtly different. There would be a glory to it that Aristotle could not have known. Yeah, I, I and everything that Paradiso is making clear. But if we take that concept and put it in our Catholic faith, that's in essence the telos that I guess I was describing. Is that we believe that the ultimate and I mean, I think Father Flynn has said it in his homily, the ultimate, the ultimate goal is for all of us to be in heaven. Yep. With God, in union. And I don't, I, I've been stressing this, I was sorry that you weren't here, but one of the images I gave because of this, this wholeness that I've been describing as the end of our journey in purgatory to recover that wholeness, and it's not a wholeness the way we conceive it, it's, it's this, the indwelling that you know the father's not less or greater that that um, when souls enter purgatory it's not just heaven plus one it's one exponentially multi it's more like the multiplication of the fishes because what happens is that worse that person becomes indwelling with everybody so the multiplication of loves that take, goes on in that moment I mean it's beyond conception so this wholeness of becoming of because the Hindus, the Eastern world doesn't they believe when they enter into the next life, they become part of a, an agglomeration. It's just a, a a hole where you lose your individuality because they see individuality as the source of sin. We see individuality as a distinct gift from God. So in our notion, when we enter heaven, we never lose it. Our individuality is protected while we become one with everybody. So the, you, what happens when we enter heaven is we're, we're, we're in union with God and more completely with each other. And there's almost no way to adequately describe that condition. It's so, it's so infinite, it's so dynamic. Remember the looking at Beatrice's eyes in the, um, in the pageant, she says, every desire I had was satisfied and it set me on longing for more. That in the presence of God, if I'm understanding this correctly, Every desire will be satisfied that we had on earth. Whatever desire and wanting to be with him. But that means every desire we have will go on infinitely because he is an infinite God. So somehow there is this joy. And the only reason I'm saying that is because most people see heaven as static. It cannot be. A communion has got to be going on with everybody in heaven somehow. Um, so the telos is... And that's so important because that's an end. It's the completion. But 
the telos for Dante would have been very different from the telos, or different in, in, in major ways than it would have been for Aristotle. Dante knows the glory, because he's got Christ. Well, you see a lot of scripture in this. You know, like, boy, when, when, he, when, he be, when he's crowned by Virgil, you know, he's, he, he takes on this childlike nature. And, you know, Christ told us in the Gospels that you need to be childlike in order to find your way to God. And the part, you know, Christ says, knock and the door shall be open. So, I mean, you know, Christ couldn't be there until Dante knocked on the door, you know? I mean, there's just a lot of scripture in that right. whole, in that whole right. thing. If right, right. kind of step back for a minute. Yeah. Kind of if you looked at it along the lines that you're saying, if you looked at it, I'd be surprised if you couldn't find scripture in every line. I mean, it informs everything he does, the way he sees what he, even if it's not made explicit, it's profound. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. You all have a good weekend. You too. I hope your Lent keeps going well. Um.